Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 51. I think I was off by a week, all week last week, and every time I, I did an episode, I, uh, I think I got the number five back, like, uh, like I was redoing a week or something, but I, I have my, uh, my reasons for that. It's been a, uh, it's been a rough couple weeks. Um, today we're, we're going back to the well at MeWe. Um, where if you go there and link up with me and look at my profile, you will see at the very top of my profile a sticky post where I take questions for Miyagi Mornings. And that's the primary way I'm getting input for, for what I'm going to do for Miyagi Mornings going forward. Just one way to get people using alternative social media. So this comes from John. John says, buying chicks through the mail, pros and cons, do you have a source? I would like to get all red sex links for egg production. I'm wondering which rooster I should pair with them. Uh, and then deplorably, Bonnie Blue says, I have no personal experience with this hatchery, but I've read good things about them. They're in Missouri, and it's a link to cackle hatchery. I have purchased um, chickens and ducks and turkeys and geese through the mail. I've had mostly positive results, and I'll talk about the, the pros and cons here. The primary places I've purchased, uh, Metzer Farms. Uh, they're just a great supplier of ducks with a lot of to choose from. Uh, they're in California, and Cackle Hatchery in Missouri. Those are the two that I have experience with actually ordering online and then having to go to the post office and get my birds or various other weird things that have happened over the years with this. So here's the – let's start with the good of buying birds online and having them shipped to you. In reality, almost every bird that you will ever buy was put in a box and shipped through the mail. It is very unlikely if you go down to your, you know, local feed store. Uh, we have one here called Russell's that always has birds for sale. We have a big kind of like a giant super version of Tractor Supply that's much better, uh, better staffed, better trained, better everything. It has a gun store inside it called Atwoods, and we have Tractor Supply. They have their chick days, of course. And what I what I found with the feed stores in Atwoods is they tend to have birds almost all year round of some sort, and Tractor Supply does their chick days thing. So they have about a month to six weeks where you can even get birds there. But in the end, most of those places, it's highly unlikely that some local guy that hatches birds, you know, got in his truck and drove the birds over to them. They, they do the same thing you do. In fact, they often buy from the same places that you would buy from. This is not like um, some real competitive distribution chain where, like, um, you know, a retailer is going to get pissed off that this provider sells direct. They have plenty of markup in there, and they buy in bulk. Uh, they buy with, you know, if it's, if it's a tractor supplied out, which they're buying with a corporate account. So they're getting quantity total across the board. So they get better pricing. It's just typical two-step distribution. So it isn't like you're going to save this bird from a journey in a box in the mail. And here's where we start to go dark. I have had birds lost in the mail. I had one time when I ordered a lot of ducks. Uh, Metzer made a mistake and shipped one of my boxes to another person. 
And I'm not sure if that person wanted another freaking 25 ducks or whatever. So you don't know what happened. Uh, we had, when we ordered them for a farm up in West Virginia, they got lost in the mail for three days. And, you know, two days in the mail for them, it's not as big a deal as you would think. They do just fine. They have so much nutrition reserves. And they feed them this little, um, this green gel stuff that hydrates them really well and gives them nutrient. And they're fine. But once you go over that, you start getting the problems. I've had birds that they put the, that green stuff in a little cup and they put it inside the box with them so that they can eat it out of the cup. And I had one one time, a little runner that got inside the cup upside down home. Who knows how long she was there, but um, she ended up with like a deformity due to it that was unrecoverable. Um, you will inevitably, when you order birds in the mail, end up putting all your birds in the brooder and looking at one and going, that one's not going to make it. Or two. Like... And that's one of the big disadvantages, right? That you, you, when you go, like, I just brought some new ducks in. I should do some videos, but I've done so much of that already. I'm not going to raise them any differently, but they're in a brooder right now in the living room. And when I went and got the birds from Atwoods, I was able to go, not that one. Nope, nope, put that one back. Like, I'm not the guy that's raising the runs. Like, I could just look at that bird and go, there's something not quite there, not keeping up with her brothers and sisters on weight gain. Um, I knew they were all new birds because I had been in there a week earlier, so they kind of all came into one shipment, and one was definitely disproportionate, and it's like, no, I don't want that one. So you're less likely to have runs, etc. Now, the other side. When you very specifically know what you want, I want this breed, and I want this many females, and I want this many males, whether it's ducks and, you know, ducks and drakes or pullets and cockerels or whatever. Um, when you order by mail, in general, with most breeds, you can be, you'll pay more, but you can be very specific. I want eight ducks and two drakes of Rowan, and boom, that's what you get. Most of the time, in the stores, when you go buy the birds, unless we're talking like red sex links and certain pullets, you're going to get straight run. Now, this is the other thing to understand about straight run. If you're buying straight run from a supplier that only sells straight run, and again, you're not buying from the supplier, the, the store is, right? If they only sell straight run, period, for a specific bird type or whatever, you're getting straight run. If you are buying from a supplier and they sell, you know, chicken, they sell pullets for X and roosters for Y, all right? And they offer that and they also have a straight run price, guess what you're getting? Straight run. That means after they culled out all the females, because that's what everybody wants more of, you get whatever's left. And sure, some of them weren't sex, but I'm betting you, because whenever whenever I've seen this happen, your ratios are right around a 50-50 on a true straight run, and you end up more like 70-30 when you get bull, what I call bullshit straight run. Well, so you don't know when you buy straight run at Tractor Supply or Atwoods or something like that. When they bought... Was it really straight run or was it leftovers? And it's probably a combination. It's probably not that bad. And you still have roll of the dice anyway. Um, the big thing is you know the health of the bird when you bring it home when you buy it in person. But if you want to dial in and certain things that you might want, like if you want Welsh Harlequins, you're probably not going down a tractor supply and getting Welsh Harlequins. And if there's one in there, you got lucky. Right? So that's what it comes down to for me. Same thing with, like, turkeys. Like... When you go get turkeys, 
at a feed store to me, you pay like three times, even including shipping. Like they're really, really expensive. So I'll, I would source turkeys from, uh, honest to God, I would probably get my tur turkeys from, um, from Cackle. They're probably the best place to get turkeys from that I, I can come up with. So it's, there is no right answer here. It comes down to what do you want and can you get that? If everything was equal, if I'm in a situation that this individual to ask the question, they want red sex links. Okay. Just know that Red Sex Link is like a trade name for a bird that can be distinguished by its appearance that lays eggs really well. So like Black Stars, Red Stars, Red Sex Links, like they might be a different color bird or whatever. It They're pretty much the same bird. So all of these birds that can be looked at are a sex link. That's what it means is that they're, they're patterned when they're born instead of, you know, checking the oil under the hood, which is difficult with a little baby peep, right? It's time consuming. You can pretty much look at the bird and go, oh, female, male. And that, that's what that's about. And then these are a high production. Production reds, red sex link, same bird, right? So if that's what you want, this is the good news. You probably can get those locally. You probably can go down to Atwoods or whatever and get them. What you probably can't get is guaranteed cockerels. So then you have to start looking for, well, what rooster? Now, if I was going to breed a rooster to a sex-linked pullet, and I wanted a rooster for my flock, the obvious answer would be a red sex-linked cockerel. You may be able to get them. I don't know. You have to check with your supplier. Um, if you order them, see, now you know you can get them. Right? They'll be happy to send them to you. Right? Um, but... Truth is, the majority of them are euthanized. Now, that sounds awful, but they don't make enough meat to economically make sense. If somebody gave them to you, right, and said, here, they're free, when you look at what it takes to raise them to a, a substantial meat yield, they're a net loss, right? Now, a homesteader, like I've always said, like homesteaders might be different, and you might be able to find... Some local hatcheries will give you give you cockerels if you find them. I mean, it's it's pretty gruesome how they get rid of them. I don't want to talk about. It. I know some people let their kids watch this stuff, um, but yeah, they're gone that fast. Let's just put it that way. And so it may not be the case that you can get one. Rhode Island Red, fine. Like it doesn't really matter. Like I think we need to get a little bit off of like unless we know why we're doing it, like. I can understand why you might pick a breed that's in real high demand, that commands a higher price to sell like chicken, you know, live chicks or well-started chicks or something like that. I understand. If you're doing this for your own backyard, I think the breed snobbery should go away. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents all had kind of their own chickens. And they were just like, they traded birds with each other and they just kept breeding and crossbreeding. And eventually they ended up with, re like, they, by, by so like, like this bird is just not what I'm looking for. So out of the genetics, this bird comes. And so we'll go ahead and put her in the stew pot or put him in the stew pot. And then we'll wait a while and then we'll go ahead and allow a hatch. Like that, that was done. You know, if you walked up to my grandfather, we had our little chicken house. We had about eight birds lived in it and a rooster. What kind are they? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, they, they're mongrels. And mongrels have a lot of, uh, luck going for them. If you've ever owned dogs, you know, purebred dogs are always the ones with all the problems. And mongrels are generally the ones that are just like, they don't, they, they just live like 16, 17, 18 years of age. 
And then they kind of crash at the end in old age instead of having all these different like joint problems and stuff going through. So I think there's some the value in that. But I'm sorry if this seems like a non-answer. But, I mean, it, it really does come down to that. If you specifically want something you can't buy locally, I would order it. And I would order more than you want. Like if you want 10 females and 2 males in some arrangement, I would probably order at least 12 females and 3 to 4 males. Just because you don't know which one's going to show up and be kind of messed up or whatever. And it's, it is inevitable. And it's not that they're doing it to you. They're not screwing you over whatever. Basically, these hatcheries, especially this year and last year, the demand increase, basically they have, they know roughly how many will hatch on a date already, like months out. And people are ordering birds months out. So these birds are hatching. Assuming the bird's alive and dry after that hatch comes, They're just grabbing, boxing, and shipping. To you, it's a little bird. To them, it's a product. That doesn't mean they don't respect it. But in the end, when you're shipping in the tens of thousands, you have to get kind of industrial with your process. And that's why I wouldn't put too much worry about the straight-run thing unless, like I said, if you see the option to buy sext and you buy straight-run, just think logistically what you would be doing. What are you going to do with all this, this weighted mail? I just throw them in the box with a bunch of other fresh hatch. And basically what they do is they, they go through enough to get all the females they have to deliver. And then whatever's left is straight run if they offer that option. Just keep that in mind. If you want any more on this, if I didn't cover it well, I feel kind of all over the map on it. I'm sorry, you guys. It's a, it was a, a long weekend, and we had some events this morning and what have you. And, I, and I've got huge freeze coming in, so this might not be my best work. But don't hesitate to do it, but don't do it unless you need to, I guess is the short answer. Take care, guys. We'll be back tomorrow. Hey, guys. Jack Spierko here. Welcome to today's episode of Miyagi Mornings, which I think is 52. I, I, I really don't know. I am, uh, I am scrambling, scrambling, scrambling because uh, the cold front is coming and weather below 10 degrees is expected, which is, for some of y'all, a big deal. Like, for us, that's unusual. And so I got a ton of stuff out there. It is vulnerable, not when it freezes, but when it freezes multiple consecutive days in a row without going back up above. So I've got to get as prepared as I possibly can. So there may be some shortages of uh, content this week. I'll do what I can to stay on par for you. Today we're going to talk about Bitcoin, crypto in, in general, but specifically Bitcoin. We're going to talk about what happened with Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, who Mike, Michael Saylor is and who MicroStrategy is and what that all has to do with this and why What looks like an incredible run-up in Bitcoin may just be the very beginning. And before I continue, I do not give investment advice. Um, and I don't know. All I can do is speculate. And that's the truth for everybody, even though not everybody will tell you that. But there are some underpinnings going on in the world of Bitcoin right now. And I know some of you hate cryptocurrency. You hate Bitcoin. And I'll tell you who most of you are. Most of you are people that, have, that are really hateful about this topic whenever I bring it up. You're people that have been listening to me to 2014, and what you're angry about is you didn't listen. You didn't get in, and you think it's too late. But you know how many times I've heard, I've missed the opportunity, it's too late, over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm here to tell you the facts as we know them right now and why it is very possible that Bitcoin has only just begun to go crazy in price and uh, why it probably has the long-term win behind it. And that does not mean that if you go buy a bunch of Bitcoin tomorrow morning that you might be looking at half the value of it in three weeks. 
my concern when I talk about this topic, especially to family, friends, close business associates and all. I, I don't know how to put this other than why the fuck do I only hear from you when Bitcoin's at all times high? I've sat for years and years and years during lulls and saying this is a great time to get involved. This is a great time to get involved. This is a great time to get involved. And all my referrals and all my inquiries go through the roof on bull runs and generally right at the top of them. And the problem is, as someone who's seasoned in this world, I have sat and I've watched a portfolio go up $10,000 in a day and $20,000 down the next day, $5,000 up and then, and then $25,000 down the next. And I've been through it over and over and over and over and over again, just like everybody else that's long-term held Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I'm prepared for that. If you're not, don't play this game. Bitcoin is incredibly volatile. That's fine. It's okay. It's supposed to be. And the whole, you know, Bitcoin's going to die. You need to look up Bitcoin obituaries and see how many times Bitcoin has been pronounced dead by people that are now advocates of Bitcoin. So please be careful here with what I'm about to tell you because it's very exciting news overall. So, of course, everybody knows now that Elon Musk and Tesla invested $1.5 billion of Tesla's money into Bitcoin. I talked about this on the show yesterday, so I don't remember the guy's name that tweeted Musk a couple months ago about this, but it's Michael Saylor. He is the CEO of a company called MicroStrategy. He's one of the longest serving CEOs out there right now. Um, he's one of the few that have survived like all the way from the dot-com bust up till now at the same company. Um, he turned to cryptocurrency early. He was one of the first major corporations to put significant amounts of corporate assets into Bitcoin. And he really ramped that up over the summer last year when the government made the, made the, the money printer go burr. You know, the printer goes burr, and they just churned out trillions of dollars. It's like, this is not good for the dollar. This is not good for den dollar-denominated interest. And he, so he looked around and said, where's the best place to park money? And he decided it was Bitcoin, more so than gold and silver. And I keep saying this. I always... I, I can't stomach this whole, well, they believe in gold and silver. So do I. They believe in Bitcoin. So do I. Diversity is diversity, guys, right? And that means that you diversify your assets. Most of you that think you're diversified because your financial advisor, who's really a financial liar, told you that you were, you're holding nothing but stocks and bonds denominated in dollars. That's not diversifying your holdings, okay? Just, I'll leave that at that today. All right, so. Michael put his money in there. He tweeted Musk a couple months ago and said, hey, you want to do your, your, your shareholders a trillion-dollar favor, capitalize your cash reserves into Bitcoin. And uh, something like a billion dollars, I think, was the recommendation. And Musk tweeted back and said, are such large transactions even possible? I saw all that go on. And I really didn't know what was going to happen. But I should have known when Peter Schiff came out and said, well, Musk could never be... Schiff is just gold and silver is everything, okay? It's an old world paradigm. Paradigms are dying. I did a whole show on that yesterday. And uh, I should have known when he said Musk wouldn't do it, that Musk was going to do it. Because let me be clear about Schiff. I love Peter Schiff. On a lot of things, he's brilliant. He's also a dinosaur. And he can't mentally comprehend the new paradigm. It's impossible. The people that own the future can There's a lot of people like that out there. Tremendous respect for him. They can't comprehend the new paradigm. Ed Wallace, you guys probably don't know him. He's a car guy. He invented the first website where he ever could shop for a car online. He was that far ahead. Now he can't understand why electric vehicles are going to rule the world. 
Can't understand it. Can't understand autonomous vehicles. Just not going to happen. Got too old, too set in his ways. That's where Schiff is. So Saylor does this. A few months later, Tesla comes out, and they have to say, we did this. That we did this thing. And uh, because they're a public company. So if they're a private company, they could have bought a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and never said a word about it. Exactly when they had to disclose this, I'm not sure. But at some point, they would have had to. And you're not going to get in trouble for disclosing something you've done as a public company. You are going to get in trouble for concealing it. Almost no matter what it is. Doesn't mean they don't do it. It means that that's how you don't get in trouble. So Tesla comes out with this. But about six days ago, um, Michael Saylor, who is, the, again, the CEO of MicroStrategy, ran a big annual summit. And the entire thing was dedicated to telling companies how to put money into Bitcoin, why to put money into Bitcoin, how to develop accounting practices and cash management strategies, how to do analysis for what portion should go in, how to do it legally, how to stay out of trouble, how to make sure that like your employees weren't using insider trading, like knowing you're about to do this and going out and buying it, like everything soup to nuts across the board. And this was attended by hundreds and hundreds of business executives from all over the country and all over the world, knowing what they were going to hear. Okay. This is where we need to understand the finite limitations of Bitcoin. And my earlier show that I did, or my other episode on Miyagi Morris, I said, what makes Bitcoin valuable? It's status as the reserve currency for crypto. No matter what exchange you use, there's a board where you can buy other cryptos with Bitcoin and you can sell other cryptocurrencies for Bitcoin. Some people call it the, the digital gold, okay? Digital gold, because we used to see gold as a reserve for money, which it isn't anymore. But I think that maybe a better way to understand this is the digital reserve currency, i.e. like the American dollar currently is in the world. I was explaining this to my wife today. When I was a young kid in the United States Army serving in Honduras, you could take a $1 bill, wrap it up around a rock, and throw it and watch little kids fight for it. Middle of the jungle in Honduras, a U.S. dollar was incredibly valuable, and you could give them the same amount. So there was an eight-limb period of $1 in Honduran money. It was the exchange rate. If you offered them... 10 lempira or $1, they would have took the dollar. That's the reserve status. That's illogical, but it is what it is. That's when people say Bitcoin is digital gold, they're not literally trying to replace a precious metal. What they're saying is it's the reserve currency that all the other cryptos orbit around. This is why if you're in a corporate interest right now and you're going to capitalize into crypto, the bulk of what you're going to do is going to be in Bitcoin, period. And if you do anything that's diversification within crypto, it's not going to be a whole shitload of these altcoins nobody ever heard of, even really good ones. Corporate money, it's going to be something like Bitcoin, Ethereum. And then maybe you even set up a little trading triangle where you have, you're using Tether or TrueUSD or something like that to, 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 to capitalize on gains and go back in. Maybe. Because most companies that do this, they are not going to go into, into trading with it. They're going to take excess cash that they have no place else to put. And they're going to put it there as a hedge against inflation because they know the dollar is doomed to, when I say that, stop, doomed 
to oblivion, I did not say. Doomed to be devalued. We just printed like three extra trillion dollars and dumped it in the economy. The only thing that's held back complete insanity with runaway inflation is this. Most of it immediately got taken and spent. That heats up the economy, but it's limited because it got spent with the mega corporations who put it in reserve. Do you see? You're starting to connect the dots here? You're starting to understand how that works? So when people went out, the, the biggest gain in sales in the country is who? Bezos and Amazon. When Amazon gets that much money, they're not you. They don't want to, let's go party. They, they have a reserve now. They figure out other shit to buy with it or it sits there. And every major corporation has the same issue. And when corporations end up with too much cash on hand, they get in danger of being relisted as something like a mutual fund instead of common stock. This is why, if you want to know why Google originally bought YouTube, they didn't see the vision. They had too much money on hand. They needed to buy something, and it seemed like that's what we'll buy. <laughs> Cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency because your government decided, it's not money. It's a commodity. Okay. Then it's not cash reserves, is it? It's not, a, it's not a capital reserve once I invested in Bitcoin as a company, right? So I can keep playing my game over here in the stock market. Now I got a new game over here in the crypto market. I can park the money there. The money is liquid. What I mean by liquid is if I have a billion parked in Bitcoin and I'm like, you know what? We need a million bucks as a bridge loan in this division. I just sell a million bucks worth of Bitcoin that fast. It's liquid. It's the best of both worlds for them, and it hedges against this loss. Now, people say, what if it goes down? It doesn't matter unless you need it. People say, like, how, Jack, how do you handle it when you know, you're sitting there with a bunch of money in, in crypto and the market tanks for crypto for a wee year? You've, you've just lost half your money. No, I haven't. I haven't sold anything. It's just sitting there. I only take it when I need it. I don't need it. I don't take it. Many of these corporations don't need it. It's a long hold. They'll take it when they need it and if they need it. They're still going to have a bunch of money in cash over here. They're going to balance the sheets. Now, couple this with this reality. Right now, there's about 18, uh, 18 million Bitcoins in circulation. At least 2 to 3 million are lost because when this whole thing started, people mined it. Computers are gone. It's unrecoverable. There's probably about 15 million Bitcoins in circulation that you could actually buy. Of that, at least a third, if it went to $100,000, the person with, the, with it in their hand will not sell it. At least a third, that's a guess, but I mean, that's probably a conservative guess. There's people that have been holding this shit without selling it since they bought it for five bucks. They won't let, there are people that will, don't get me wrong, up and down is part of this. This is why I get scared when I tell you the truth about this, because I know people do stupid shit due to FOMO, fear of missing out. And it's amazing, again, you can have Bitcoin at three grand. Look, start taking it as a payment and go buy it, and nothing. And then it goes up, and how do I buy it? Don't ask me, because I don't want my hands on that. You can figure it out if you want to. right? Go to Coinbase and sign up. But be careful right now. This is an all-time high, but the long-term potential here now. So let's say there were 200 executives at that meeting, that either had authority to act on behalf of their company or they're going to be listened to. Okay? And let's say 50 of them pull the trigger. 
What happens to the price of Bitcoin? Understand how much money we're talking about these companies are holding, competing for this small amount. Because, again, let's, let me get a prop here. Let's say that uh, this, this seltzer can represents all the Bitcoin that's available, period. It can be bought right now. There's a little bit more that will eventually go up here. It's going to take over 50 years for it to be mined. All right? So that that is not even in play. And there's a halving every three years, half of what is being mined. So this tiny piece is the new Bitcoin. You can't make more. The math locked it. It cannot have more. This is not a Federal Reserve note. You can't just turn the printing press on. The printer doesn't go burr. Okay, then you've got a third of it. People will not sell, Period. You got a third of it people are are willing to sell in extreme circumstances, and a third of what's left is people trading. So what happens when a corporation, let's say somebody as large as General Electric, whose market cap is larger than the entire market cap of all cryptocurrency, just one stock? What happens when that corporation decides, hey, let's put 1% of our reserves? The demand cannot be met. I, I cannot emphasize this enough. If this switches to way it looks like it's going to switch, it cannot happen. You can't do it at anything approaching the current prices. And all of a sudden, these people that sound like lunatics are going, Bitcoin's going to hit a half a million dollars, or Bitcoin's going to hit a million dollars someday. They don't sound like lunatics anymore. They don't sound like lunatics. And this is the key here. This is the key. I'm not going to tell you today. We have one of those rare weeks where I do two episodes in a row where I come back tomorrow and I tell you what the real key is to what's going on here. But when you can't win and you're used to winning, you co-opt. Let that sink around in the brain for a while. I'll come back tomorrow and we'll complete this because I don't want to go too long. 16 minutes is long for Miyagi. We'll catch you later. Hey, guys and gals. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Morning. Yesterday, I did a... uh, a video about why I thought Bitcoin long-term is going to explode in value. I was like, it's already exploded. Well, I don't think you understand, so you can watch that video if you haven't yet. But I kind of left you with a little bit of a cliffhanger because the video got long for a Miyagi Mornings video about what's really driving everything, what's really going on here. And before I start today's, i got to like pay homage to somebody's uh, phraseology, a statement, and some things that they've said. And that would be my buddy Vin Armani. Vin Armani, a long time ago, coined the, the phrase crypto savage. And I'm not going to say anything about what that means because it's his term, and he's defined it beautifully. And if you want to know more, you can go look up Vin Armani crypto savage and see what everything he said about it. But because I'm going to talk about how this actually relates to, believe it or not, Native Americans, I just need to acknowledge that and some of this kind of comes from that line of thinking and and the basic thing that i will say that he said about it was that when 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 settlers came here and they looked at native americans they referred to them as savages but even then they were cryptic savages because there were things that the person looking at them just couldn't understand uh if you even look at the way that many native american tribes gardened the horticulture they practiced it didn't look anything like a garden. Everyone knows the Three Sisters garden, stuff like that. And there were natives that had, you know, kind of proper farm type situations. But there was a lot of ecosystem management that those guys did um, that really didn't even start to fall apart until hundreds of years later. That They were so well balanced. 
Um, and that was from the eastern United States and the way that certain berries were kind of cultivated in, in glades in opens in the forest to the manzanitas on the west coast. I mean, it's in everything in between. So just I want to acknowledge that because this is going to come from that line of thought a little bit. But what I asked you yesterday at the end of, of the episode was, what do you do when there's a situation that comes up and you can't win, but you're used to winning and you have lots of power? So in other words, it, there is no doubt that the financial elites and what have you, as Bitcoin rose, that, that really kind of followed the first they ignore you, then they mock you, then they fight you, then you win model. I mean, really, that if you look back at everything, that's kind of where you're at. So what happens when you think this is a joke, and then you mock it, then you try to fight it, and you can't win the direct fight? You do what elites always do. You co-opt it. How does that relate to Native Americans? Well, I think you have to understand why why the colonists, the Europeans, et cetera, how call it whatever group you want to, did what they did in North America and elsewhere as well, but specifically North America, to the native population. It wasn't just, hey, they look different than us, so they have to die. Right. I mean that all there's there's racism throughout history across every in, in every direction and that always is used to justify horrors and always has been. Um, it was a totally different reason though. We, when I say we, I'm, I mean, my family didn't get here till the 1900s. So we, collectively, the we, whatever you want to make that mean, wanted to establish a state. A republic, but a state. And a state is force and a state is violence. That's what we wanted, right? When I say Americans, right? Early Americans. And that meant that you needed to bring everybody under heel. And the only way that people are willing to make that deal, because it's a horrible deal when you think about it. All your freedoms are subject to what somebody over there says based on a vote or kingship or whatever. It doesn't matter how that that small group gets appointed. They control your life now. So why do we make the deal? We make the deal for security. We can say all kinds of things about economics and jobs and property and, and everything else. But in the end, we only make the deal, if you want to put it down to a single word, which I like to do when you can, is security. So that I know I can go to the store and get food. So that I know someone won't come take my stuff. So that I know another nation won't invade us. You just keep going, and every one of those comes down to security. So, and, and it goes around your, 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 your basic survival needs, right? Food, water, housing, health and sanitation, security, and energy. So think of how the, America, the Native Americans lived, specifically those that were more of a nomadic tribal group than some of the ones that were more permanent settlement. They went wherever they needed to, whenever they needed to go there. They followed the bison herds and the elk herds, and they, they built their housing from what they had. They had a very egalitarian society, and they, they had everything that they needed. They had all the security they could possibly want. And the, the reality of the brutal horror that came to them was because of that. What do you offer those people? What do you have to offer people that have total freedom and have had gen, multi-generational security in their place, their person, their tribe, their housing, their food, their water, their health? 
And understand, they were way healthier than we were. When we first started settling North America, we looked at the Indians like they were giants. They were, you know, several inches taller on average than us. They were lean. They were muscular. Because they lived on meat and fat, by the way. So what did we do? We didn't just kill them. We didn't just give them smallpox blankets, etc. No, we destroyed their food supply. You know, I learned in school, many things I learned in school turned out to not be true. One of the things that I just never passed a sniff test for me that I learned in high school was, well, the reason they killed off all the bison is they needed to settle the West, and they were kind of in the way, and, and they weren't really worth keeping around because nobody wanted to eat them. They even tried to crossbreed them with cows and make a beefalo so people would eat it. This didn't make sense to me, especially in the time that we're talking. Like, people ate squirrels and freaking raccoons and shit. They won't eat buffalo meat, and I had had buffalo meat, and that never passed the sniff test. No, they did it to starve out the natives. That's how they beat them. They starve them out. So I just asked myself, let's go back to that time. Imagine for some reason that that solution wasn't available. You couldn't kill the buffalo, just like you can't kill cryptocurrency. What would you do if you were the maniacs in charge and you wanted to bring those folks under heel? You would co-opt the system. You would go in and you would start managing the buffalo and the elk the way that we manage cattle. And you would fence off land. And you would paddock off land. And you would claim control of certain blocks of land. And you would have taken that and used it as a food source for yourself, for the people that you, you wanted to bring under heel, and for your own. That's what you would do. And it was if you didn't have the option of exterminating the food source, you take control of the food source as best you can. Does that make sense? How does that relate to cryptocurrency today? Since crazy leap. No, it's not. What is the purpose of cryptocurrency in its genesis? What did, what did Satoshi Nakamoto want Bitcoin to be? A global trustless settlement solution that allowed commerce between individuals with no third party required for trust. That's what it's supposed to be. You and I could be in different parts of the world. You can send me money and I can send you stuff. And I don't have to worry about whether or not your money's good. That's it. That's the point. For all of the talk, and there's some wonderful innovations that have come from that, but that's the base. Okay. <clears throat> what does that for you now? The global banking system, right? That's who you're dependent upon. And that global banking system runs primarily on the U.S. dollar. And how does the dollar get its value? Because we have a bunch of big-ass bombs, a bunch of big-ass ships, a bunch of submarines, nuclear missiles and shit that we can blow the fuck out of the world with, and we say the money's worth what we say it is. Do not deceive yourself into why the American dollar is dominant in the world right now. Because of our blue water navy and our capabilities militarily. That is why. That is the reason why. And that is all propped up and run through and funneled through the global banking system. And what does Bitcoin do? What does cryptocurrency do? It renders that system obsolete. You can have all the nuclear bombs you want. There's no Bitcoin building with a big B on it to drop one on. You have to kill yourself to win. These people don't kill themselves. They stay in power. So what do you do now? You buy Bitcoin yourself. This is the logical next step. The big money comes in, 
and buys Bitcoin and tries to take as much from it as far as profit as they can. And what does that mean? That means that you have to drive the price up because unlike the money that they're familiar with, you can't just make more. You can't just make more of it. Can't do it. Math locked the equation. We have a 100% rule set with Bitcoin. You don't get to change it. So now what you have is the buffalo herd that the savages live on. Okay? You want to control the savage. And your thought is, well, I'll starve the savage. I'll get rid of the buffalo. And you go try to get rid of the buffalo. It turns out every time you shoot a buffalo, another one just appears. You can't get rid of it. There's no way. That's that's cryptocurrency. And nobody's probably ever explained it to you that way before. But that's where we're at. So the only play is to co-opt it as best you can. And they can't completely co-opt it. Right? What are they going to do? What are they? It's a distributed network with an adjusting difficulty. If you put more nodes out there and more miners out there, the difficulty goes up. If you have less, the difficulty drops so that the, so the less miners can do the same work. What are you going to do? What do you, I mean, how are you going to? You can't. And that's what I've been trying to say from the beginning. I'd be like, they're going to they're going to cancel Bitcoin. They're going to delete it or whatever stupid shit people come up with. Like I said yesterday, do not criticize what you can't understand, folks. Don't talk shit about something you don't know anything about. I said that in the other podcast yesterday. So many people that criticize Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole, they have no idea what they're talking about. And Bitcoin is now firmly entrenched as the reserve digital currency and knocking it off is actually probably harder than knocking off the dollar as the global reserve currency right now. It's that strong in that position. And all these people are like, well, it doesn't make good money, man. The fees are high. You know, you can't really buy a scone and a coffee with it. So what? So what? This is why people use the term digital gold. Do you go out and buy scones and coffee with gold? But all you metal bugs, right? Oh, you got to have gold and silver. Like I said, I have gold and silver. I don't understand this This added. I actually will explain it to you. When, when you're like, well, I... You know, I'm talking about cryptocurrency today. Man, gold and silver, man. Gold and silver, man. I'm just saying that's the way, man. Gold. You know what that is? That's a person who's taken all their fucking money beyond the money that they pay their fucking bills with and put it all into gold and silver, and that's the only thing they have as an investment, and they're trying to justify that shitty decision. And by the way, you can substitute Bitcoin for that. The only place anybody's savings is is Bitcoin. I would also call that a shitty decision. Eggs in one basket are a bad idea. We've known this for our whole lives, right? Then we go out and we do the exact opposite of the advice that makes sense. So that's all that is. That's when a person does that. That means that they've, they've gone all in on that play. And they're bitter because the person that told them, hey, you should probably diversify, right, is now sitting on an asset that's gone up in the last year like 150%. And so they're angry. And that's why they do that. And that's why you can't get myopic in, in any of this. But they can seize your gold if they can find it. Right now, there's a guy over in Germany. They, they seized, I think, $60 million worth of his Bitcoin, they say. They've seized it. They're like, well, we need the password. He's like, no. So what that means is they went in, they took a device that has a wallet on it. That's it. That's all I can say. That they, Maybe they got a Trazor or something. I don't know what they got. I didn't look at this. I don't care. 
they don't have his Bitcoin. They have a device that theoretically could access it. If he's smart and he has his, his depending on how it's held, if it's in a seed phrase or private keys or whatever, he can go somewhere else and just make it appear there. When they say they've seized it, okay, great, you've seized it. Now go ahead. Go ahead, get it. Go ahead, do it. And by the time, and if they crack that encryption, if this guy knows what he's doing, they can crack that encryption and like, oh, we got in. There's nothing here. Oh, where'd it go? Oh, there it says on the blockchain it went over there. Oh, funny that. I didn't do it. Can you prove I did it? No, okay. I don't know how to get to it now. You guys go ahead and do it. This is the power of a digital currency. This is the power of rendering the banks impotent. This is what they're afraid of. They've so much as said this. The head of the European bank came out and said, if this continues, people may lose faith in government-backed currencies. That's their words, not mine. They know how precarious the situation is. You have to understand what money is. Money is a collective agreement for this this symbol to be used as a ledger of accounting. That's all money is. It doesn't matter if it's gold, silver, giant stones, seashells, human bones, turds, fish, digital freaking notes, grain bills, tally sticks. It doesn't matter what it is. It's still because we agree to it. And they have taken that agreement and they've used military force to enforce the agreement... And then they, they, you cannot resist the temptation to print money at will when you have the power to print money at will. It is literally the one ring to rule them all that should be thrown asunder into the pit of Sauron or wherever the hell it goes. I don't remember my Lord of the Rings very well, but I know the point. That's what the power to print money is. It's an evil ring that should be discarded. It's too much power for anybody to have, for any group of people to have. And that's the brilliance of Bitcoin and many cryptocurrencies modeled after it. Instead of, we will solve shortages by making more. Because that's, that's why it's done. We, well, you can't cap a currency. Like if you capped the currency in the United States in 1950, a dollar today would be worth, I don't know, 500 grand? How do you buy something for what we think of as a penny in value? Since it's digital, you cap it, you fractionalize it. Until a, until a million units per unit. That's what a Satoshi is. As I said yesterday, if a Satoshi is ever worth a penny, Bitcoin is worth a million dollars. That's how that works. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying that's the math. It's that simple to understand. One Bitcoin becomes worth one million dollars. It's a really interesting way to do things. So there's never a shortage. We just take a smaller and smaller and smaller piece. If you have a dollar bill, you can only break it into a hundred pieces we call a penny. You go to half cents. See, there's a point where it starts, what do you go to quarter cents? How, how far down can you go with that? Which is a digital currency, theoretically, it's unlimited as far as you decide to go. That's the brilliance here. And what it enables, again, is global commerce without a third party intermediary. And it was done in such a way that not only is Bitcoin the, like the first and the anchor? It's also the impetus and the uh, inspiration for every other form of cryptocurrency that's ever been developed, whether it uses proof of work, delayed proof of work, proof of stake, right? It doesn't matter how. It all seeds from this one idea. You and I transacting business without them.
and they can't kill it. Unlike the buffalo and the elk that were far more widespread than most people today learn about. There were elk from New England to California and from Washington to Southern Georgia, just walking around. There were species of elk that are extinct that were part of those herds. Unlimited food. We starved them. That's how we won. They couldn't be beat because they didn't need us. They couldn't be brought under heel because they didn't need us. But you can starve people out. But unlike buffalo and elk, you can't kill Bitcoin. If you doubt me, read the Bitcoin obituaries. I'll make sure I link to it in this episode of this video. Hey folks, Jack Spierko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Uh, we're going to have a, a little bit shorter of an episode. I got a lot of stuff going on today and I found a question that I thought would be an interesting one for a lot of you guys out there that are trying to get your side hustle on and maybe, you know, build up a little bit of online content. Uh, content creation is a good business to be in. Um, if you look at what I do since 2008, it's been my primary business is content creation. And, uh, it's a good business if you can make the commitment and be committed to it, and if you can make the frequency. So if you're going to podcast, weekly's minimum. If you're going to do video, weekly's minimum. I mean, weekly's minimum for anything, but daily is better. And if you're going to do something like three times a week, four times a week, whatever it is, once you make the commitment, make the commitment and, and meet it. And that's just a little extra advice today for you. The question's a little bit different, though. It's about taxes. I am very famous for saying that the tax code is 10% of what you have to do, and 90% of the tax code is how you get out of it. And that's that's the case. And there's a lot of things you can do when you run a business that you can't do when you don't run a business and you have a J-O-B. But that doesn't mean that it's magic. And the question today is interesting because it, it brings up a couple things. And that is, as a content creator, what can I deduct and the person asking the question, again, on my MeWe profile, the very first post, it's locked at the top, is where you can suggest uh, questions and, and topics for Miyagi Mornings. Um, basically said, I'm not making any money yet, but if I buy a thing for a video, can I deduct it? And it depends. So anybody that's a long-term listener to me knows I'm going to say CPA here. Like I always say tax attorney and CPA, but tax attorneys are more like business structure stuff. So... When you're beyond a side hustle, when you're setting up an actual entity, this is when you really want to get into discussions with a tax attorney. CPAs can do 99% of what you'll need throughout running a business, and CPAs can do 100% of what most people will ever need. So the only thing you really need a CPA for here is, how do I do this? And do I do this? And is this okay? And if it's not, is there a way that I could make this thing deductible? And so I can't tell you what is or isn't deductible. There's so many things that transpond into this. There is the fact that some of you live in states with state income tax, I guess because you hate money. And so you might have actually different rules for your state income tax payments than from your federal tax payments. So I can't say exactly how this works. I'll just give you kind of a generalized understanding of this. So technically, if you're buying something to do a video or something like that, and it's not equipment for recording, like this microphone setup here or something like that. It is a item that you're going to review or use in a video or two uh, or something like that. You're going to present it unless it's specifically for 
that purpose, it's not deductible. But who says if it's specifically for that purpose? And generally, again, things change. I haven't had my conversation with my CPA this year yet as to what we're doing, so I don't know anything that might have changed. Generally, items under $500 are pretty easy to just expense. Generally, please understand that. Generally, they're just easy to expense. Even if it's supposed to be depreciated, you can accelerate the full depreciation into a single expense. Not always. And the IRS is always on the lookout for what's called structuring. So if really like it was four things that are really one thing, but you parted out your purchases, that could work to keep each individual item under 500 bucks. But if, and it's a very long shot that most of you that, that earn, you know, a hundred grand or 200 grand a year or less are ever going to see an audit. It just understand that it's a low probability. But if it does occur, that's when those type of things come up. In other words, you can do it for years and years and years and never hear a word about it. But, you know, you can end up getting some questions like, did you specifically part this out so that you could deduct it rather than depreciate it? Because some things, when they become an asset in the business, let's say go out and buy a computer to use, you would think, I just write that off. Well, no, now the business owns the computer. And the computer's value the day you buy it for, let's say, $2,000 is $2,000. And it's going to be depreciated over five years, let's say. And there's there's accelerated and standard depreciation. There's different models. Again, that's a CPA discussion. But let's say if we just did, let's say it was a $1,000 computer, and we depreciate it to zero over five years, you would expense $200 the first year, $200 the second year, $200 the third. You get it until it's down to it's worthless. And then technically you're supposed to dispose of it somehow, which usually larger companies where they worry more about audits and stuff will then sell the item to an employee for a dollar. Something like that, even if, uh, you know, whenever they decide to get rid of it, when it's like, we're not going to use this anymore, they'll sell it for a dollar. So it's a transaction on the books. And then they can say, yeah, well, you know, we took this thing to zero and we made a dollar. There's ways that maybe you can do that in a home size business, but it's probably not necessary. Again, this is a discussion with your CPA. Now, the person also said, do I have to make money first? Um, it depends on how you mean what you, you're saying. In general, you have to have revenue. You have to have revenue. You don't have to make, make money means you're profitable, right? So if you have any income stream where you can say this revenue is tied to this activity, even if it's just a few bucks, then generally anything you do, as long as you're attempting to make a profit, right? And I'm, I'm serious about that. You have to be trying. You can write off and you can generally do that. It's four or five years before you make a profit. You can do it. And then at some point, that revenue becomes taxable if you don't make a profit um, because it becomes it becomes a hobby. It becomes hobby income because you, clearly you're not you're not actually running a going concern is, is the way the government looks at it. Now, of course, you can always decide that you made a profit and then kind of reset things. Again, that's a CPA discussion. But in general, to safely deduct any expense from any activity, there should be some revenue there. Now, if you're doing videos, even if it's small, there should be some revenue from like Google ads, right? So you should be trying to make money is, is my point. And as long as there's a revenue stream, see revenue and income are not the same. Revenue is how much money the business received. And if that business is a corporation or 
a sole proprietorship and you're doing business as, you know, Bill Smith with your own social security registered with, you know, Google AdWords and you're getting money from them, that's revenue. Income, right, is profit. It's how much money you made. So if you have a revenue stream, you have the ability to deduct expenses against it. That's, that's the way I understand it. Again, I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax attorney. That's why I have those people who work for me. And what I generally do is, here's what I want to do. Will this be deductible? And if there is a way in which I need to do it, tell me what that is. And I will, and generally, most of the, been doing this so long that I have pretty good instincts on it. I will bring every penny I've spent to my CPA when we do our annual, you know, tax submission to the government and say, this is what I've done. What do I call it? That's, that's, that's generally the biggest thing. What do we call this? So that if we ever have to explain it, we're in the best position possible. And I just want to finish up today with something really, really important. Do not, repeat, do not start a business just for tax deductions. That's, that's, that's not how this works. It is absolutely the case that as a business owner, you operate in a different world from an employee. As a business owner, I earn, I spend, and then I pay tax. As an employee, you earn, you pay tax, and then you spend. That is a, that is a life-changing thing as a business owner. I can deduct things that you can't even begin to think about deducting. I can deduct the space that I'm sitting in, in my house, against the total cost of my house, based on how much square footage this is relative to the rest. You can't do that if you're not in a business, okay? But I also earn a living from my business. I pay my bills with my business. I didn't set up a business just so I could do that. And if you do that, that's when you get into multiple forms of trouble. You get in trouble with the government maybe, but more importantly, you get in trouble with, you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, or the reason that is your why is not a good why, and you're going to make critical errors. There are rules to business and the way that you run a business to be fiscally responsible with the entity that you're operating, even if that fiscal responsibility only goes to one person, you. And when people come at this, I want a business so I can pay less taxes, right? That almost inevitably means that business will fail. You go to business to make money. You go to business to be successful in the business. And think of it like aquaponics, right? I know that's a, I, I make some weird analogies sometimes, but it's only because I see patterns. And, and the only reason that some people said yesterday, like, my analogy was a stretch, that's because you've been trained not to see patterns, our entire educational paradigm is built on making you not see patterns because if you want to control people, you better make sure they don't see the patterns of control. All right? So in aquaponics, people always think, I want to do aquaponics to produce fish. No. You do aquaponics to produce vegetables. The fish are a byproduct. Right? Anybody that's ever done it at any scale knows this, that you will never get a huge ROI from the fish, that you'll get this nice little extra bump of protein, but you're really running the system for production on vegetation. Anybody who's done it commercially, they make their money on salad. I know people that have run aquaponic systems for years commercially, have never sold one fish. They, when the fish get to a certain size, they go ahead and they use them personally. You know, and don't let them get huge because all they're worried about is they are the fertilizing component to the system, right? That's how you have to look at tax deductions in business. The purpose of the business 
is to make money. The byproduct is making money in a way where you give the government less of it. And, and that's the way to come at it, no matter what, the content creation or otherwise. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that one. I will catch up with you tomorrow with another one. Hey guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 55. And today I have a question that came off of the MeWe post about Miyagi Mornings. It's a pretty interesting one, and it is uh, multi-layered. We're going to peel off like one real layer of it. It's like, are you prepared to be disabled uh, temporarily or long-term? Are you prepared to get old? Right? And, and things like that, losing capabilities and, and losing uh, you know, mobility and what have you as we age, and losing the ability maybe to do as much physical labor as we age as well. So there's way more there than we can unpackage and, you know, 10 minutes on a Miyagi Mornings video. So I want to talk about something that we've had direct experience with both a few years ago and we're dealing with right now, and that is short-term disability that limits movement. And in my experience, there's two things that can do that more so than any other injury, and those are knee injuries and back injuries. Um, anybody that's ever had a really thrown-out back knows it's, it's very limiting in your ability to move it's hard to get comfortable, and you, you can't really do much physically moving around well if it's a really bad back issue, and you're not only limited then in your mobility with your legs, you're limited in your arms. Knee injuries are incredibly limiting um, in that you, you just feel that you can't do anything, and those are the ones that, that we've dealt with and are dealing with. So a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I had a serious knee injury, and the total recovery period was over two months. But the acute stage of the injury lasted a couple weeks where I could not move without crutches. Uh, we happened to be on the road when it happened, so I ended up having to be wheeled through an airport in a wheelchair by my wife. It was, uh, it was not a good experience coming home, bad turbulence. It was, it was a pretty rough experience. And then just this week, my wife had her knee go out, and we're not really sure why. She didn't really have, like, an injury due to something she did. Her knee felt kind of tight and achy in the morning, and she was getting ready to leave and go pick her grandkids up and pop. And, uh, you know, meniscus or LCL or MCL, who knows. Um, she's way better today, and that's only in four days, and that's a good thing. But knee injuries are one of those things that you have to be, like, once you have it, you have to be really careful about worsening it and re-injuring it. And so... Part of the mindset here needs to be that there are some injuries that instead of, I'm still going to push through it, you need to stop and you need to relax. And my wife struggles with this. She's not the kind of person who likes to sit on her butt all day long. It's not her. And so this week's been a struggle just to say, stay. Let me get it for you. What have you. And I know people have this mindset of, well, if you're not going to try, then you know, you're not going to recover. Knee injuries and back injuries during that acute phase when the swelling's high, especially something like a joint, like a knee, if there's actually a tear in the meniscus or something like that, it's dangerous to push at all in the beginning. You should stay off it as much as possible. And even when it starts to get better, that's when it's really dangerous. And you can take something that might have you, you know, take a two to three weeks to recover decently and then maybe another month of just taking it easy, but being able to move around and be normal, right? And you can turn it into something that's multi-months or requires surgery to correct. And the same thing with a back injury, right? So 
We need to be prepared. And so how do we prepare? One of the greatest blessings that we had is that the fact that I had already experienced this a few years ago, we were on the road. We had nothing to deal with the problem. And we were stuck there for another couple of days before we came home. So, you know, Amazon overnight to the rescue, and I ordered knee braces. And my wife took an Uber and went and got me a set of crutches um, from, like, a local Rite Aid or something like that, and started immediately applying comfrey ointment to it, which I credit with that injury with, you know, basically saving me from the need to have surgery. Because any doctor that looked at that would have said, this this is not going to heal on something, you have to have surgery. And it's I, at this point, I'm completely and totally healed for years, right? My wife's I'm a little more concerned about because I don't know exactly what happened. Like, I knew what happened to mine, right? Um because it was an acute injury. Hers just happening like that. That's, you know, what's really wrong. And, you know, when you go to a doctor, whether they're going to give you an MRI and try to talk you into surgery. So uh, the initial thing to do is to rest it. So the first thing that we did when she ended up in that situation was I said, just stay there. You know, she was on one foot holding onto a back rail of a chair, and I went and got the crutches. And that way she was able to move to the couch, sit down, got in touch with our kids, you're going to have to bring the grandkids here today. And, you know, then proceeded to that whole day of basically anything she needed, I or one of the grandkids went and got it for her. And so I think that the things that you should have at a minimum on hand in case an injury like this occurs is a set of crutches, some knee braces, um, and uh, some can- a cane or two around. Because depending on how bad the injury is. And then I think that before you're injured, Believe it or not, walking with crutches and walking with a cane is a skill. And most people, the way they think you do it, it's not the way you do it, right? So I'm, I can't really explain that in a video like this, but it's something I think you should actually learn how to walk with crutches and learn how to walk with a cane with either leg having been the, the, the injured leg. And with a cane, you kind of follow it, and you're putting it down as you put the foot down, and you're bearing the weight with your body as you transfer the other leg. And the, and the crutch is very much the same thing. If you have a serious leg injury and your, your solution with crutches is what I see a lot of people do, which is just kind of hang your knee so you're not bearing any weight on it, and then just you know kind of propel yourself hopping on one foot, what happens is that knee's doing this, and if that's the knee, you can injure it just from the momentum of doing that. You have to be really careful. Um, I also recommend that everybody keeps some sort of comfrey ointment on hand. I'm a big fan of Dr. Christopher's Deep Tissue and Bone, uh, or Complete Tissue and Bone. It's a fantastic product. Uh, I do make my own comfrey ointment, but Dr. Christopher's has things other than comfrey, and for that type of injury, that's what I would go. Now, that's kind of what I wanted to confine today to, is that type of either back, knee, can't move. Um, because again, there's so many ways that this can, and you know, a permanent disability is a totally different situation. And that's something that like the only real prep for that, that I can give you is, uh, long-term disability insurance. I mean, really that's, that's a totally different world. Getting old, that's something that we generally kind of scale into over time. It's not really abrupt. We don't go from 50 to 75 in, in one year. Right, we're not like dogs. We don't age that fast and accelerate at the end. Um, so we generally have some time to adjust to that. But that's important. And some of the things that you can do that will help with the acute injury or these other things is all the stuff on your homestead. Try to automate as much as you can. Try to make what you have to do as little as possible to keep things running. Um, 
can you leave for a week and your significant other can kind of take care of the place? If not, if either one of you gets hurt, you got a real problem. Because it's the same situation. Because right now, like, everything that we're doing, I have to go do. Right? It's not because she doesn't want to. In fact, I have to, like, don't do it. Stay. It's it's difficult, right? Uh, but we got, you know, ice coming in. We've got the coldest cold front that we've ever experienced. I've got all my systems I have to worry about. Um, we have family in town. I just had a friend in town for a couple of days. Like, it's everything always comes at once. And these, these types of injuries, these abrupt injuries, they show up when you least expect them. Like, that's the whole point, right? Like, you don't plan to get hurt, right? You plan not to get hurt. And there's never a good time. But it does seem like they always dogpile on, like, the worst situation that you could be in to have it happen now. And so I think that having the stuff that you need on hand is really, really important. And then having a mindset and an understanding that there are certain injuries. And this is like, I think this is really important. And I know there's a lot of fortitude in this audience, right? These are You guys are not the guys cowering in your toilet paper for it, right, hiding from the COVID. Um, you guys are people that are out still living your life. You're not afraid. You're bold individuals. But there's times when fortune favors the bold, and there's times when fortune favors the cautious. And I think there's an old saying that's something like, old men don't get old by being brave, they get old by being cautious. And it doesn't mean that you're afraid or fearful, but cautious simply means you think before you act. And so having the right mindset that if this type of injury occurs, we've got a plan in place to deal with it, and I am going to take the time, or my significant other is going to take the time to recuperate. And then where you really have to think about this at a higher level of automation is if you live alone. And my wife already said, man, she said, I've been thinking so much about people, older people that live alone, and if something like this happens, what do they do? And so if you have a lot of stuff that keeps you busy, that's fine. And if it requires, like, I'm all for hard work. But whatever the minimum threshold of keep everything going, stuff doesn't die, you need to take that and dial that down to as easy and as little labor as possible, which is a good plan anyway. That's, that makes it a low-energy system. And that means that like, if you have to hire someone off next door or something and they come over, you can explain the minimum of what needs doing, and you can get somebody to do that for you for you know, a few bucks or something until you can, you can recover. So hopefully I did a good job on this one. This is not like a really exciting uh, discussion to have. It's not something people want to think about getting hurt, but we do. We get hurt. I mean, everybody I know has been injured to the point of not being able to really fully function at one point or another in their life. It's almost inedible as a human that we exist as a fragile creature in some ways, and we're going to deal with this. And there is very few things, in my experience, again, back injury and a knee injury. A knee injury, well, I'm talking where you can't bear weight on a leg. You, you just feel that you can't do anything. And it's, it's also a little bit, well, the final thing I'll give you, it's, it's depressing. It's depressing. I remember, like, you know, hobbling all my crutches down to this little cafe at the hotel we were staying at it and eating a sandwich and watching people just walk by and literally hating those people for just a second. Just thinking, you know, you, don't, you, you, you have no idea. You have no idea what a blessing being able to walk is. And you can get in your head really quick with these injuries. So being mentally prepared to understand, like, things like this do get better. They do go away. And you do recover from them. But you need to be patient in your recovery. I think is is a really, really important thing. And you have... You are much more likely to get there mentally if you think about it in advance. And what's funny is, the final thing kind of with married couples is, when one's injured, the other one absolutely knows what he's doing. 
and they're always willing to help. And it's the one that's injured that's like, oh, I can do it. I can do it, right? I can do it. And that's really a mistake because that person who's taking care of you during that time is depending on you to get better. And if you, through pride, re-injure or excessively injure a thing that's bad already, and you go from needing a week or two or three to recover to needing a month or two or three to recover, that's that much longer that the thing you're feeling bad about goes on. So my wife keeps asking, what can I do? And my, my response has been this week, you can do as little as possible because I don't want this to go longer than it has to. And I know she felt the same way with me as I was being bullheaded during my injury. So think about the other person, not so much from during this time they have to do it all. But if I don't take care of myself, how much longer will they have to do it all? Because you get one body, guys. You get one life, at least you know this time around, I guess you'd say. And uh, so take care of yourselves and be prepared for injuries. Have those first aid kits, but definitely crutches, a cane, um, knee braces. I think those are huge. Slings and stuff like that, too, yeah. But, boy, I mean, if your arm's out, you know, your other arm works, your legs work, your back works, you can still kind of get things done with it, like an arm and a sling. Knees and backs, guys, it's it's really debilitating. And I wouldn't say I would say that in some situations, especially you know, keep an eye on things for sale and stuff. Having a wheelchair around if you have a space for it, it's uh, it's not overkill. And you can buy a decent wheelchair for a hundred bucks. And a lot of times they'll be on sale, like on uh, Craigslist and all. You know, people need to get rid of one because they don't see any use for it anymore. Fifty bucks. It'd be not a wheelchair that you'd want to be in long term if you had to stay in a wheelchair, like if you had a permanent disability. Um, but just having that in many instances can be incredibly helpful especially think about needing to go to the doctor think about needing to get somebody into a car right like if you don't have a house where you can pull right up to the front door and you, I mean you see what I'm saying so I think that wheelchairs are probably a good prep to have around too take care guys thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap remember I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.